Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Dark Rhino Securities, Security Confidential. Today, we are honored to have another great guest join us. Joshua Brown is with us. Joshua is the CISO at H&R Block, a company that is very well known. I'm sure all of you have probably associated with them at one time or another. He has deep experience in designing and building information security programs. He is an expert on zero trust, which we're going to talk about. Uh, his approach to information security, I find somewhat unique, and I really want to get into this, is because uh, he says it is to transparently support and drive business initiatives, leveraging security capabilities to differentiate companies. Uh, and that's something that is uh, sorely missing in the industry, if you will, from a lot of people. And uh, Joshua has spoken at InfoSec World at InfraGuard and at ISSA. He's a SANS mentor. In short, he is an expert in helping companies reduce risk. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. So Joshua, let's, <clears throat> there's there's so many questions here. But what, <laughs> I, I found your background fascinating. So you, you by your education, you, you have a great liberal arts education. You've studied philosophy in great mm. depth. And somehow you ended up <laughs> took a hard left turn. Was right? this a lot of bad decisions? Good luck, or <laughs> what was? Well, the... <laughs> you know, when I started undergrad, I was convinced that I wanted to be an MD. Uh, I was a biology chemistry double major, uh, which was a huge mistake. Uh, I, but I, you know, I got to the point of shadowing physicians at Duke University Med Center. Like I was, I was all in on okay. this. We have lots of doctors in my family. My brother's a surgeon brother-in-law and sister-in-law are both doctors my uncle was a flight surgeon for the navy like we have a we have a, a history there right um believe me you're talking to someone that has the exact same story yep. that's uncanny but well and what i realized as i was studying that is is that i was miserable um i didn't enjoy it i didn't enjoy i mean intellectually i'm fascinated with biology and chemistry and all those things right sure. uh, turns out i wasn't excellent at doing them um and I, I realized the only classes I was really enjoying were the philosophy classes I was taking. Um, you know, I, I so I ended up pursuing a PhD in philosophy. Um, I got pretty far down the road on that. I spent about five years. Uh, I didn't finish my dissertation. I finished everything else. And I, I got I got really burned out um, after that. And I decided to take a sabbatical. Uh, and I okay. and I went to the Motley Fool and got a job on the help desk. Um, and the rest is kind of history. Uh, I was sitting right next to the security team. I think I absorbed a fair bit through osmosis, uh, but I found what they <laughs> did just fascinating because it touched every single aspect of, of the IT infrastructure as well as you know the people part, right? So um, this, this was embarrassingly long ago. Uh, I, I feel like I date myself whenever I talk about it, but you know, the, no, the, that... it was still when I think InfoSec was, was a very young practice springing off as a sub practice out of it. And so, you know, it was natural for me to go from a help desk job to a server job, to a fiber networking job, to eventually InfoSec. Uh, so I've been doing InfoSec now for, uh, 18 years or so. I've been in IT for about 25. Um, and, and it's been a, a pretty, pretty crazy journey. Fascinating. The Motley Fool, that brings back memories. They, those guys, the Gartner brothers wrote a couple great fantastic books. books and they're, there. they're, they're genuinely fantastic guys uh, getting to work in that. Oh, you oh met yeah. Them. I mean, it, you know, it was very much a startup environment. It, we had about 400 people at the company at the, at the Fool at that point. Um, yeah, we, they came into the office regularly. We worked with them all the time. I mean, super approachable and, um, just great guys, uh, really great. And, and it's still a great company that I think they have the best domain ever fool.com I think is just, is brilliant. Right. <laughs> yeah, I know that there, uh, used to be, the, I think the tagline was a fool is a fool is a motley fool or something like that in the, yeah, uh, it comes from the Shakespearean, <laughs> right? Books. Yeah. And, and just, you know, yeah. really turning and this, this idea of returning the power to individuals to, to manage their own future. I love that, that concept. The, the, that, that's awesome. So, you know, we see, uh, you know, prior to the show, we were talking just a little bit about that. That's such a diverse background mm -hmm. that you have an eclectic background and how you got into cyber. We're seeing, companies, not just companies, but institutions put in place programs for cybersecurity professionals. Yep. 
And, you know, I'm part of such a group uh, at Slippery Rock University where we try and advise them on the industry advisory board on mm -hmm. what to do with CyberSec. Do you think that we're, are we going to be better served having just straight computer science mm -hmm. or CyberSec people? Or is that background of diversity essential to the success of an information security program? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I, I wrestle with this one a lot philosophically. I mean, I think um, I believe that having as, as much diversity of background, of thought, of experience in your InfoSec program as possible gives you a better chance of solving tough problems. I don't want everybody looking like me coming from my same background, trying to solve a problem because you're going to approach it with a very specific set of lenses that's determined by your experience as a person. Uh, so I want lots of lenses. Um, you know, I, I worry about this push towards pre-professional programs at, at all schools and it, well, not all, but most schools now have InfoSec programs, right? And so, you know, you're right. not going to be studying philosophy. You're not going to be looking at art history or, or music appreciation or, or physics. Like you're going to be doing computer science. Um, now, I think there's great value in every InfoSec professional learning a programming language. Like I, if I really could right now only hire people that had a development background, I would do it. Um, but I think, the, you know, the key is ultimately I'm focused on finding the right people for my program, not the right, necessarily the right skills. Skills can be taught. Uh, and tech is changing so fast that I think we we have to be do a better job of not being gatekeepers about who can who can join an infosec team if you find the right person with the right passion the right intellect um you know you can make them help mold them and mentor them into the kind of infosec professional that you need and that they're going to be highly successful and fulfilled at doing um you know we have 700 800,000 open positions in the US yeah. right and and something like 3 million globally so yes. If we're, you know, if we're looking for entry level people and we're saying, well, you got to have your, you know, your CISSP, which cracks me up because it's not an entry level cert, right? But, well, right. you know, we want certain experience and, and yet we can't get enough people at that level. So I think as, as security leaders, it is, it's incumbent on us and more, more so than that, it's, it's our duty to train the next generation of security professionals. And that means being open to investing your time, your people's time in uh, in, in grooming and building uh, a cadre of, of skilled professionals with as diverse a set of backgrounds as you can. I have tons of people on my team now that are, um, you know, have no InfoSec background. They came in and they're just kicking ass. Uh, I've got second career people like ex-cops, ex-military, ex-healthcare, um, you know, and, and giving people the right opportunity and the right resources they need to, to fulfill those roles. That's our job, um, and and not turning people away simply because oh well you you haven't had three years of experience at this particular sim tool or you know it's yeah. we're we're shooting ourselves in the foot I, and then complaining what, about how much it hurts. Joshua, I'm smiling um, because our listeners have heard this uh, quite a few times from me, mm. but they're hearing it from an honest to god CISO at a major mm. company now. Uh, you know some of the best engineers that we've ever hired, we actually, they didn't have computer science degrees. They actually, one of them came out of yeah. high school and they just had a passion. Yeah. You know, uh, we've taken uh, people out of the military, yeah. uh, m more than half our companies out of the military. And as long as you have the work ethic and the passion, what you're saying is so right. You can teach the skill, but you can't teach them how to be a strong person, a yep. good person. Then. I used to make a joke that like my only two criteria for hiring is smarter than me and not a sociopath. Right. And it, it always gets a laugh line. Right. <laughs> and so I kind of stopped saying it, but it's, it's really true. Like I want people, I want you to care about your coworkers. I want you to care about the job you're doing. Um, and as far as the technical skills, if you're lacking something, we'll get you there. Um, that's, you know, and I, and I think that is the kind of, um, I think that's the kind of approach we have to take in terms of building uh, highly successful teams. Uh, we have to have skin in the game. You can't just say, well, I'm going to hire the absolute most skilled people I can. No, you need to be getting people fresh out of college, getting people excited. There's so many people out there still that have no idea that like this is a career path. Uh, that's just not, oh, not yeah. what their background is. And 
I mean, one of the most successful people I have on my team right now uh, had a nursing background, um, had no IT experience, and you know, came out of an accelerator program that that H&R Block has, which is largely designed for software engineers. Uh, but we've got three or four uh, just amazing engineers out of it ourselves now for for InfoSec and and um, watching those talents progress and watching their minds click and and get it, you know, it's it's so rewarding. And it, I guess it goes back to my my love of teaching, right? I I can't ever let go of that part. That's fantastic. And I know we actually have uh, one hardcore listener that is going to love that comment because she came into this world from nursing as well. And uh, it's good to know you're not alone. And, you know, CyberSec, InfoSec, I should say, is one of those few places where I am told statistically women actually end up making a little bit more money mm. than men, uh, according to the recruiters. And that's one of the few professions where women have the edge. So if you're listening out there, Think about it. Well, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, it, yeah. it goes to the diversity of background, diversity of thought, right? Is again, if everyone looks like me on my team, we're not going to be necessarily more effective at solving problems because we don't have all the different lenses that you need to unlock tough problems. Um, I, you know, we really focused on diversity of background uh, during the great resignation uh, or great reshuffle or great upgrade or whatever <laughs> we want to call it, right? And, what do and, call it? and, you know, we ended up, um, you know, our, our team is extremely diverse now. And I think the results that we're getting show the efficacy of that, of that train of thought. That's, uh, that's excellent. You know, one of the, the, the two problems that I've seen that happen when you get people with a pure maths, computer science type of background is that one, cybersecurity is really a business problem. It's not a technology that's exactly problem. Right. And to under to understand it from that aspect, you have to go beyond the ones and zeros. And the, and you have to bring the people into the equation. It's something that I hope people are tired of hearing from <laughs> me, but it's, it, it's true. If you can't get the people in your company to come along and play ball with you, you're not going to have a very good That's program. Right. And that requires more than ones and zeros. The second thing is understanding your mm. adversary. That's right. Right. And uh, I've been trying to, I've been pushing for psychology mm. classes for understanding, you know, getting some diversification, uh, getting some criminal background classes and people need to understand who they're playing ball with. Uh, I haven't been very successful at that, but Hey, I, I keep trying. I mean, I, I think it's getting better and I'm glad to hear that, you know, you're fighting the good fight there too. I think it's absolutely critical. Um, and you're right, you know, the people skills, the soft skills, whatever you want to call them, thinking about things deeply and having different lenses. I mean, one of the great benefits, uh, you know, we joined uh, the FS ISAC, Financial Services ISAC, a couple of years ago, and yep. we were the first non-bank entity to do so. And that's, you know, there's ISACs for all, all sorts of different verticals. Sure. Um, I highly encourage companies to join because getting, seeing what your peers uh, in the industry, even your competitors, seeing what they're facing, being able to share, you know, we're, we really are all in this together. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that having a great security program can be a competitive differentiator for a business, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't share indicators of compromise that you've seen with your peers through an ISAC uh, or get some of those feeds from other people. I, I think that kind of threat intel, we can't be walling off our information because we're all just going to get creamed by it. Well, there's a lot of stigma in sharing. Sure is. That, yeah. Right. Because you're admitting that there was a problem of some kind and that uh, a lot of breaches are still underreported. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, you know, um, growth comes to the point of struggle. I think Brene Brown said that one. I love that thought. Right. Yes. And so why would we not take a learning that that, you know, is the good guys finally standing up and beating the bad guys for a change? Why wouldn't we share that with with other people in the industry, right? We we have to, uh, we really have to approach this as we're all in it together. Uh, otherwise, we're all going to get picked off one at a time, right? You can be faster than the slowest person, but eventually, all the slow people get get eaten, and now the bear's still hungry. That's that's a great way to put it. I, I love it. 
let, let's get back to something you said, using cybersecurity as a mm. competitive advantage. How how do you do that? How do you use these technologies? Yeah, I mean, some examples. yeah, so I think I think there's a few different ways to look at it. There's there's the obvious like cybersecurity is a marketing uh, perspective, right? Like um, companies that have a play, uh, you know, think about big banks like Cap One or, or um, US Bank or any of those, right? They're touting like military grade encryption and, you know, they, they throw those terms out there because right. they know that their customers are going to be uh, anxious about those very things, right? Um, as a player in the financial services industry block, obviously we care a great deal. I mean, our, our reputation is built around uh, that we take care of our customers' data. Uh, and we have probably some of the most toxic data you could have, um, you know, by nature of the business that we oh. do, right? Um, personal financial data is just, you know, extremely, uh, extremely sensitive. And, and so we, we, we take that, that responsibility very seriously. Um, I think that, you know, from a services perspective, if you're trying to differentiate yourself, um, offering direct benefits to your customers in that realm, uh, you get sort of the halo effect, right? So credit monitoring services are provided for free or, uh, dark web monitoring services or things like that. Um, sure. and then there's, uh, the way that I think most people think about this is cybersecurity is kind of a bastion. So when your competitors are showing up in the news for the wrong reasons, um, you don't have to come out and say, yeah, we're super secure, but it, you know, if, if you are, uh, you know, the Walmart at the time when home De or when targets getting, getting popped, right. right. You're becoming, it's becoming a differentiator for you because you're not in the news. Um, it's very rare that you get in the news for a cybersecurity thing, and it's a good thing. <laughs> that That's true. But let, let me ask you this. Have you seen any corporation use, like, let, let's take IAM as an example, uh, IAM technologies to drive a brand loyalty program? Yeah. Often, if you think about it, right, I mean, how you, you look at somebody, I'll just, just pick somebody random out of thin air, like... Um, um, you know, the, the limited group of companies, right? They own yeah. Gap, they own Victoria's Secret. How many of the same people have signed up for emails at Victoria's Secret that right. are the same yeah. people at Gap, that are the same people at Old Navy? And if you can consolidate those identities, right. maybe you can figure out what they're actually no, doing. No, I think, you know, anything you can do to reduce customer friction, reduce the, uh, the you know, we, all, we talk a lot internally about reducing attack surface on our corporate networks. But really, it's the same thing you're talking about here, right? If I've got six different accounts because I got Banana Republic and Gap and Old Navy and Victoria, yeah. all those things, right? Uh, and I guarantee you, most people are using the same password across all of those. So one of those gets popped and, oh. and now they're all popped. Um, no, I think that's a fascinating question. I mean, I think, you know, it's incumbent on us to, if we're trying to help our business and part of the business is attracting new revenue streams through additional customers, we want to make that sign-up process as easy and as painless as possible, right? Yes. And we want to make it so that, you know, if you have to give information, you only have to give it once. We don't want to have to keep going back to the well. But but Absolutely. a lot of companies view that as an opportunity to take shortcuts, right? So, well, we're not going to we're not going to to double opt-in. We're not going to force, you know, a password security of certain length or or complexity, or, you know, or whatever. Um, Happily, technology is stepping in to help on some of these areas, but I think you're right, especially for these holding companies where you've got a lot of brands under one roof. Why not do a single sign-on type thing and, and help those things converge? Converge, and, and now you can tr actually track real buying patterns, and you know that yahoo.com, J at Yahoo, J at Gmail is the same person. That's right. <laughs> so maybe you can even set pricing for the, I don't know. There's a, it, it always occurs to me, and I'm just using that one example. There's a lot of technologies that enable InfoSec that could be used for some very good things for potentially adding additional sure. revenue streams to the. Well, and I think what we're, we're also seeing is this convergence of your, um, your work identity with your personal digital identities, right? So um, you know, I know that that infosec professionals like to scream about people using their corporate email addresses to sign up for services and websites and things like that. But there isn't yet, I think, a really ubiquitous good solution for, okay, cool. How about if I just have one set of identities and I use that everywhere, right? If I only had to manage one, it could be super secure. Of course, 
then you run the pro the problem of like if that one gets popped now we've got a really big problem but frankly uh, with the number of people that have crappy passwords and you reuse them in lots of places we may already have this issue we just don't realize it oh um that's a heartening yeah. thought there <laughs> disheartening thought i should say so you know getting back to uh threat surfaces what what do you think like in uh, the professional service arena what's what's facing professional service firms from a threat yeah so you know, I've been reading a lot about this lately, and and there's a lot. I think a lot of the conventional wisdom. It's not. It's not that it's wrong. It's just I think it may be missing the point a little bit. So you'll you'll hear a lot of people okay. say like, okay, insider threat are your own employees, because even if you don't have any malicious insiders, uh, code errors, configuration errors, uh, of course, phishing and ransomware attacks. We see stuff in the news on you know daily about this. Um, others say third-party right. risk, and and gosh, we've certainly seen a lot of that with SolarWinds, with Kronos, um, you know, et cetera. Oh, yeah. Target. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Your HVAC, HVAC guy, guy, right? I, who expects their <laughs> HVAC guys to be excellent at cybersecurity? Like zero people expect that. Um, and so I, I don't think that these views are wrong necessarily. I just think they're too tactical in nature. Um, in my view, the the biggest threat is not having a holistic view of information security. So, you know, I, I used to use this, this mantra or trope around visibility, intelligence, response. Like those are the three buckets and everything is going to turn on those. So visibility is crucial for developing a realistic sense of the threats, the particular threats that face your company, not just the threats that everybody faces. Um, but you have to apply business intelligence to make sense of those threats, right? So everything that you see out there, it's like getting a generic threat feed for financial services. That's not going to be very helpful for us. You have to apply our business right. logic to understand what layers of defense make the most sense based on a variety of factors. And then how well situated are you as an organization in terms of your ability to contain and recover uh, in, in case there is a security instance? So, um, and the fascinating thing about contain and recover, it, you know, how you respond to an instance, the old Mike Tyson quote, right? Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Um, you can have a yeah. great incident response True. plan, but if you're not drilling on that and involving corporate communications and legal and HR and your executive and, you know, all of that crisis comms, you're not going to be well polished when an incident happens and you're going to stumble out of the gate. And if you're especially if you're a publicly traded company, that is a very bad position to be in. So you want to be uh, I hate to say it, but like you need to be a well-oiled machine for incident response. And that means you got to actually practice it with people who aren't part of your team. Well, you just teed up a whole bunch of questions better than I could have ever done. I, I, I'll, I'll tell you that, which, which gets, you know, having that holistic view starts with mm. risk. And, I, and I'll tell you, that term is a little adulterated in our industry only because everybody, like, find me an InfoSec or cybersecurity website that doesn't talk yeah. about risk in some yeah. way. Right. How do you mm. actually really, if you're starting something off, how do you measure and define yeah. it? A great question. And um, I think if there was a great answer uh, that resonated with everyone, we would have solved this problem. But, I, you know, if you look, just look at the number of different frameworks there are for measuring and monitoring risk. Right. Oh, my right? God. And, and we don't have all day I know, for that. <laughs> but you know, like we've we've been, you know, I've been talking with some of my peers in the industry about about the fair model, which I I think has some some fantastic advantages to it. You know, linking directly linking impact to real dollar impact, right? So speaking the language of the non infosec professionals, um, and and you know, there's lots of ways that you can try to manage risk that are inappropriate from from a financial standpoint, right? Because we could. We could spend our entire uh, our entire revenue stream on InfoSec, and that doesn't mean we're not going to get attacked, that we're not going to get breached, right? So there's Absolutely. a point where buying down your risk um, is not advantageous anymore. Um, but I think you know the the big the big key thing is risk is not just an information security concept. It is not an IT problem. You said this earlier, right? Businesses are starting to realize that security risk is business risk. Um, and so right. if we can all speak the same language, 
we can at least start moving forward in terms of how we prioritize efforts inside and outside of information security. Uh, if we can't get to that common language, if we are trying to force non-IT and non-infosec people to speak our language, it's going to be a miserable failure, right? And so, you know, one of the things you were talking about is 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 um, how you know the role of a CISO. I think a lot of times we focus on the ISO part and not the C part. Um, all the other C-level executives are not information security professionals. They are not, That's most right. of them, except for the CIO or the CTO, are not IT professionals. So it's incumbent on us to meet them where they are, not drag them to where we are and beat them over the head with technology terms, right? We're all trying to manage risk. I need them to tell me what they're worried about. It's not what keeps me up at night. I know all the stuff that I'm thinking about and worrying about from a risk perspective. We got those covered. I'm worried about the things I don't know about because I haven't been in the room for the conversation or the InfoSec team hasn't been at the table when a decision's being made. Which gets to the question of how do you determine what's the floor on risk? And yeah. you alluded to this, you know, at some point it doesn't make any sense to buy right. it down. So at what point does the mitigation stop and how, how do you get a company acceptable or to accept that they're, they're never going to be a hundred percent breach right. safe, if that's yeah. a term. Um, but it's down to an acceptable yeah. level. It, you know, the, it, some of the risk models crack me up and, and it's no wonder that they're, you know, they don't end up being operationally terribly effective because, you know, if you go to your board and you're like, well, we've looked at the frequency <laughs> and the impact and we believe that data security is a seven. Like, what the hell does that mean? Right? Um, yeah, exactly. The other thing is that we, we oftentimes make the mistake of talking about risk, communicating about risk in a way that like, if you just give us some money, we'll make the risk go away. We're not removing risk. Mitigation is not removing risk. It's reducing it. So it's like shaving. I'm not removing hair. I'm reducing hair, like beard reduction, not beard removal. Um, so when you think about that and you, you know, you can just have these straight up conversations with people about, look, um, there's a certain amount of money we need to spend on prevention. There's a certain amount of money we need to spend on, on detection and visibility. And there's a certain amount of money we need to spend on recovery because anyone can be breached with, the, you know, we have a limited number of, of resources, time, people, you know, tools, whatever. Our sure. attackers do not. They have unlimited time. They have, in case of nation states, essentially unlimited budgets. So the right motivated attacker can find a way in. How do we make Absolutely. sure that we detect that as quickly as possible if if and when it happens and we we mitigate the damage that that causes to the smallest possible level that we can? That's what true risk mitigation looks like. So if I if I tell them like, hey, look, if anyone who works on this project, if their account gets compromised, the impact is contained to this little blast radius. And that yeah. the cost associated with that is 40 man hours of work or, you know, you have to put it in some terms like that. And then people understand um, every time I want to go to the board or to my boss and ask for money for something, that risk calculation, including the business impact analysis and the cost has to be there. That's the level of rigor that is expected outside of IT. It should be no different for us looking for money uh, to solve problems. Absolutely. The only thing I would add to that, what you're describing is defense in depth to, yep. a, to, a, <laughs> to a large. Yeah. Team. And we have to keep trumpeting that because I think, you know, so many IT people and certainly InfoSec people are, are technophiles, right? We love technology. I don't believe oh, yeah. that we've ever completely solved a security problem by buying a piece of technology, right? It's always part of a bigger, right? People process technology in that order. So you get your people right, you get your process well, that's right. That's a big myth that you just busted. Well, so I, I mean, and it's not popular with, especially with salespeople. Like I get that. I Look, I love technology too, um, but that's the last level. That's the instantiation and enforcement of your policy layer. Um, right. So again, think you have, you have to think about this holistically and, and all too often you'll get a new, you know, you, you decide like, we're going to go down this path. We're going to implement this platform. Here's the benefits it's going to have. Here's the costs. Uh, look at the ROI. This is a, you know, a slam dunk. And they'll be like, okay, what about that thing you bought three years ago? Can we roll that off now? Like, no. <laughs> and, and here's why. Right. And 
look, I want a lean tech stack. I don't want a bunch of different tools, uh, a lot of complexity in the environment. That's kind of the, the enemy of security. It's picking the right tools to, to help you achieve the outcomes that you want to achieve. And defense in depth is absolutely necessary. Yeah. And it, it's one, uh, it's a topic that I don't think most people understand outside of the security realms. And it's really a, an outgrowth of a military strategy. And they just, I, I guess the industry hasn't focused on it. They they really love uh, technology, yeah. which, which really brings me to the question of the mm. people. So how do you establish in your organization a culture mm -hmm. of cybersecurity? And I'm not saying paranoia, but vigilance, yeah. understanding, you know, that bringing the masses into the, that they're part of an InfoSec yeah. program. They're not outside right. of it. Yeah. I mean, look, I, obviously I, I'm a, I started as an educator. Um, you know, my parents were both teachers. Um, I, I have a great love of teaching and, and helping people learn anything from mentoring to, you know, actually teaching classes. And I think that, uh, I go back and forth on it, on security awareness training, actually. Um, I kind of view it now as, as table stakes and, um, but I don't have any illusions about how effective it is overall, uh, by itself. So, you know, if you have a hundred thousand people in your company and you force them all to take, you know, fishing training, like we do it monthly. Okay. Uh, and if, you know, to be breached, you only need one person to click out of, out of those hundred thousand. Right. So are you ever going to get to 99.99% effective? No, of course not. I want to get, to, no. it, and if your security stack and the success of your, of your security program depends on non-IT, not, so non-technical, non-security people making the right decision 100% of the time, you're going to, you're going to fail. So you have to think about, right. okay, what happens if somebody, it, it, first of all, if the phishing message gets past all of our filters and our technology stack and gets clicked on and the person gets compromised, okay, now what, right? What are the other defenses we have to prevent actual damage from, from taking place? Um, I think the other part is you have to be, if you want to be a partner to the rest of the business, you first have to see yourself as part of the business, which means people on my team need to understand what our business imperatives are, how we're trying to achieve those, um, you know, what's going on in the boardroom. Part of that is my job to communicate that. Uh, part of that is the leadership team at your company being open and, and transparent with the company about what they're, where they're putting their efforts and what they're trying to do. Right. If we don't have a deep understanding of how the business works, we're only going to be accidentally successful and nobody wants to be in that position. So if you show time and time again that you can come to the table, contribute to what the business is trying to do, even accelerate it, find ways to solve problems that make things better for them and for you, they're going to yep. start inviting you to that party, right? You're going to be the cool guy that gets to hang out instead of the guy that wears all black and stands in the corner by himself. And that is a problem in by itself. So there's a perception in a lot of companies that the IT guys are some people wearing hoodies in a back room yep. somewhere, right? And they're bar largely the department yep. of no. So anytime you go to them, the answer is always yep. no. And this is how one of the ways in which we get shadow IT, because right. people are not going to stop doing their job. They're going to find a way to do their job in spite of whatever controls are put in place. Yeah. So how that, that what you're talking about, getting the cybersec people to understand the business and then understand the people and the business of the business, how, that's a that's a big lift. Yeah. I mean, I think so, you know, if your InfoSec program has the reputation of being the department of no, like you've got a serious problem. Um, you know, I, I like to call it the place where good ideas go to die, right? Um, you don't, you don't want to be viewed that way. And, and so a story I like to tell, and I don't know if it's true or not, but it's a great story. So I'm going to continue telling it is the first cars that rolled off the assembly line didn't have brakes. They didn't need them. They didn't go fast enough to need brakes. Brakes were added later to help cars go faster safely. And that's how I view InfoSec, right? Yes, we're going to put some guardrails up there. Um, a phrase we use internally a lot is like, we want to create a safe space for people to try dangerous things. So all the cloud guardrails that we put in place, the, those are programmatic. They happen in the background. They're going to make sure that you don't do something 
you know, that could that could bring harm to the company. But otherwise, like go to town, knock yourself out. Like we feel confident about about, you know, the framework that we built. Um, you know, I think the problem is that a lot of people and, and this is getting better, so I'm not pessimistic about this, but a lot of people feel like the role of the of the security department is to tell people no, because we're protecting them from themselves. Look at this terrible decision you almost made. We're not going to let you do that. That is not our job. Our job is to help the business make well-informed risk-based decisions. If you do this, here are the likely outcomes attached to dollars, right? Um, now, if you want to make that decision, you're accepting the risk, right? Here's a risk acceptance form. Sign off on this there and you you're go. good, right? Uh, and we're going to track that as it, it because it's probably going to be an exception to our policies. So we're going to track that in a you know in an online system. And every 12 months, we're going to revisit this and make sure that the business is still comfortable accepting that risk. Our job is to is to track that risk and make sure the business is aware of what its risk profile is. See, that is uh, really cool what you just said, and that's that can be put in operationally by any firm listening to Correct. this show. I, Even if you're using a spreadsheet, no, right? It, it doesn't matter. Post-it notes, but it, you have to track it. You have to be aware of it. You must. Yeah, and don't say no. I, say all right if that's th that's brilliant, uh, because now the element of the why is coming into the equation, and that's something yes. that we see often is sorely missing. If people understand the why behind something, they're going to be apt to follow it versus just a plain mandate that says you must do this. Nobody knows why. I mean, look, hundred hundred percent. I could not agree with you more about the why. And I think that the why is critical for team building. It's critical for execution. Uh, it's critical for having a shared understanding of, of decisions that are being made, right? Um, I'm going to tell you, you know, I tell my people, I try to get the why across. That's the most important bit. The how and the what, I leave to them. Like, chart your own path, figure out how to solve problems, and we'll get there. But my my goal as a leader is to get everybody aligned on a common purpose that they understand that resonates with them. They understand what they're contributing. They're understanding what they get if the outcome is is achieved. And then we all move together, right? At that point, the the discussions about the how and the what can can take place full fledged like go tussle figure it out and then everybody's going to pull in the same direction when a decision's made so i i gotta ask you this question because you're a sans mentor mm -hmm. and uh it's been a while but yeah uh, for, well you know for for people mm -hmm. listening and, and you mentioned cloud mm -hmm. how you've programmatically secured uh, some put some yeah. guardrails in place for the crowd. There's another myth. You already missed busted one, so let's try for number two. And that is <laughs> that because I am using Amazon, Microsoft, mm. Google, or whatever whatever variety of cloud I am using, uh, cybersecurity is taken care of, and I don't have to really worry. Yeah, about it. that's and that's probably one of the most dangerous myths. Um, I mean, so. There are a couple things. I think at the most uh, basic and pedantic level, you could say you just exchange the word cloud with someone else's computers, right? So, um, it, it, and obviously it's it's much more sophisticated challenge than that. But you you know all of the providers, all the major cloud providers, publish uh, documents that show you where the the cloud provider's responsibility stops and yours starts. So. Uh, they are responsible for, um, you know, the security of their platforms. They're not responsible for the security of how you utilize their platforms. So, sure, you can take a, you know, an S3 bucket and make it open to the world. They'll let you do that. It's not the default, you know, configuration, but you absolutely can. And we see it happen constantly. Yeah. Um this is not to say, by the way, that the Microsofts and the Amazons and the IBMs and the Oracles and the Googles of the world don't have great security teams that are monitoring their environments, right? They absolutely are. Sure they do. But you're putting your applications in their space, right? Um, so look, if you want to do infrastructure as a service and you want to stand up virtual machines, like the slider for where the security responsibility starts is going to move farther to your side. If you want to go all the way up and you're just consuming software as a service, well, the slider is going to go farther to the provider's side. 
you, but you have to be aware of those different, and most people have a variety of services of different tiers, right? Platform as a service, uh, infrastructure as a service, and software as a service. Um, you know, it's not, <laughs> this isn't all about cost saving and it isn't all about reducing the size of your staff. And, and it, it is a lot about, you know, speed to business and, and speed of innovation, but you still can't forget your responsibilities. And I think that's the, the key point. I think, uh, I, we all really appreciate that. I think people need to hear that from other professionals and they need to understand, because I can't tell you the number of executives that we've run into that believe, well, you know, we're using Microsoft 365. Microsoft's taking care of all that. I'm like, okay, if you say so, how you configure it, that's up to yeah. you. That's your right. choice. And have you looked yeah. at it? So let's, you know, sticking to the topic of cloud and you're an expert on zero mm. trust. Uh, what's your opinion on sassy mm. versus zero trust? Is it an either or, or no, I, I, so, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, no, no, like everything else, you know, the marketing machine gets a hold of, of these terms. And then, uh, you know, your executives are on a plane and they have the in-flight magazine and it's trumpeting like zero trust, the next most important thing. And before you know it, every product out there has like, they've slapped a, like now with a hundred percent more zero trust label on the front of it. And you look at some of these products and you're like, this has absolutely nothing to do with zero trust. Um, <laughs> and you know, the other frustrating thing is for anybody who's been in the game for a while, these aren't new concepts either. Right. So we want right. to give people the access they need to do their jobs. So they need access to resources only when they need that access and then you remove it when they don't need it. And giving access to that resource or resources doesn't confer access to anything else, right? So all you're doing is, you know, you're basically micro-perimeterizing your people at that point. Like, I'm just gonna put a tiny bubble around you and you do this thing and I'm gonna make a risk-based analysis on whether you're not you get access to this thing, assuming you're authorized to get access to it. Um, there are, of course, technology enablers for this. So the ability to say, oh, okay, well, you're on a corporate controlled endpoint that's got a certificate on it that's bound to your identity. And, oh, I see you're in this group that gives you access to this thing. And you're coming from a country you've always come from at a time you've always come, right? All those behavioral bits. We, we put all the, we stir all that soup up and we get a, a risk rating on the person. And that determines like, okay, well, now I need a multi-factor. I need, I need your token because uh, it's 3 a.m. and you've never contact, you know, you never tried to access at 3 a.m. or hey, that's weird. You're coming from Vietnam and I've never seen that either. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. but but these aren't new concepts. It's, it's if anything right. else, it's a framework that's helping us stitch things together. And I, I love to see the federal government getting into this game, not because they have a great track record at information security. They don't. Oh, they but, don't. They you know, don't. drawing a line in the sand and saying, everybody has to do this. Like this will move the needle. It will force some things. But ultimately we're back to questions about how do you manage identity, right? Because that's foundational to all of this. Right. How much visibility do you have to behavior in your organization with your devices, with your applications? Are you getting all that data into a place where you can actually make sense of those transactions and trace them across the environment? If you don't even have that level of visibility and you don't have a clean identity house, like your house is not in order, you're not gonna be able to go down the zero trust path. You gotta fix that stuff first. It's good cyber hygiene. Yeah. And those you're talking about the fundamentals before. I mean, these concepts, you're right, have been there for a long. They were they predate the cloud. Oh, absolutely. Fact. They've been there for a long. They're fundamentals of software design, you know, right. and access. I mean, look, people and, people have this. Some people have this this view that they can just buy a product and slap it in and turn it on and all their problems are going to be solved. And it's simply not true. Even the most, uh, you know, the highest Gartner and Forrester rated zero trust, sassy, whatever you want to call it platforms and tools yeah. now there is a ton of work that goes into getting those tuned and configured and effective in your environment Absolutely. that's assuming you have all of those prerequisites you know you've got a clean identity house and you you know how to manage and monitor risk now you mentioned uh about the federal government getting mm -hmm. in on the game now this is going to put a little bit of pressure on small yes. businesses, small, medium yeah. businesses. And when I say small, medium businesses, you know, those companies that are like 30 to six, 700 employees, yeah. somewhere in yeah. that range. 
those people are somewhat resource yeah. limited. And we look at that, uh, the look at the sand sliding skill that describes how they should, it's prescriptive on how they should invest. A lot of those folks cannot jump that chasm from prevention to detection and response. Yeah. How, and your thoughts or comments on how we, how that problem needs to be addressed. Cause it needs yeah. to be, it flows into third party risk with, yeah, no, it's it's a great point, and I think you know the money issue is is very real. Um, you can't you you can't expect a company that is the size you know that is a, a thirty million dollar a year company even from spending what an H and R block spends on on security, right? Um, the risk sure. models are different too, uh, but we see this all the time with third party vendors that that we want to work with that you know they're not big enough to get a sock to. Uh, really to spend the money and, and do that kind of thing. They, you know, it's very expensive. It, it absolutely yes. is. And so, <clears throat> um, you know, happily, there are a variety of, of managed security service providers that, that are, that are not bad, um, you know, that, that can give you kind of a blended security capability at, at a relative, well, at least at a, uh, a predictable cost, right? So, uh, it's not going to be something like, oh, we had a ton of business and so our cost went through the roof. Um, but, you right. know, there's also a tipping point for companies where it makes more sense to bring those resources back in-house and do it yourself. Absolutely. Um, you know, there is an inflection. There absolutely is. And, you know, uh, look, I've 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 been I've I've had the for the good fortune of being able to build security programs in multiple companies, um, both ones that outsourced parts or whole whole aspects of the security function and and companies that have done it all themselves um a, a managed security service provider is still a company that's trying to make money and they do that through efficiency and so having services they offer that can be provided across a number of customers at the same time is is how they how they build that and how they drive their revenue they're never going to care as much about your company as you do that doesn't mean they can't provide better outcomes than you can for the amount of money you're spending um, you know, so if that makes sense, right. If, if I have, if that's a very uh, pragmatic thought, right. Process. So if I have an IT team of five guys, like having one security guy is not sufficient, like regardless of that's what, right. how much you cut off for yourself, like that is not okay. Um, so is it better to have no security guys and outsource all of it to a provider that has trained people looking 24 seven across a variety, like maybe probably even, um, you know, and, and so this is like, again, you have to know your business, you have to know what the risks are, and you have to know what you're willing to spend in a responsible manner to mitigate against those risks. So what do you do if you are a big company and you do rely, and every large company has several small sure. vendors, yep. you know, whether it's the guys that are doing um, HVAC, yeah. we'll pick on yeah. target there, or it's guys who are uh, doing lawn maintenance, or for whatever reason they are in the environment doing something yeah. and it's a necessary. Yes. Yeah. How do you manage that third party? Right. Risk? So, you know, I think that regardless of what function a third party or fourth party or whatever is providing to you, you have to take a look at it's a serious look and it has to be a standardized process on how you uh, through the entire life cycle of the relationship with that partner. So before you roll them on as a provider, like, do you have a SOC 2? Can you complete a SIG light? Uh, you know, are you going to be, and, and, and that has to be indexed against the risk in terms of what they're doing for your company. So are they accessing any customer data? Are they accessing any of your systems? If the answer to those things is no, like they provide staples for us. They provide post-it notes, like mm, not so worried. Like the billing relationship is, is going to be probably the only tech that they inter interact with. But if it's a provider that's going to be accessing customer data where it exposes you to privacy regulations or you know anything like that, the bar has to be raised. If the provider can't raise that bar, there are probably other providers that compete with them that can. But of course, you get into this space where there's a very specific niche and it's really only one player and their security right. stance is not mature. What do you do? Well, you have to look at what capabilities you can offer to help mitigate that risk. So do we give them corporate managed assets that only connect through a Citrix environment or a jump box or something like that. Do we make sure that they have read only access and the data is encrypted and we own the key? Like there's, there are things you can do, but 
if if <laughs> where where things get really ugly is if you don't have a mature program and your provider doesn't have a mature program like that's uh you know that's does it matter at that point because everyone's just accepted the risk and said yeah we'll leave it to providence yeah, yeah. i don't think companies <laughs> like that are going to stay around too long is, is what i think but yeah I, I agree with that but there's a whole bunch of them there out sure there. is yeah yeah tar target rich environment so I, <laughs> we can call it that yeah a very very target rich environment so I wanted to, I know we're coming up on the hour here. I wanted to give you a chance to please uh, let our listeners know about anything, events, things that you're doing, talks. I know you're going to be speaking at B-Sides uh, coming yep. up here. Uh, anything, whatever, the floor is yours, whatever you'd like yeah, to talk Yeah, well, about. a couple things. I'm going to be talking. So I am speaking at B-Sides. I'm giving a talk there. And so you want to be a CISO, um, kind of helping people understand what, what the C part means in front of it and and some of the things we've talked about today, right? Especially for for young security talent that they're thinking about this is like it's the pinnacle position of of InfoSec. More of a realistic, you know, no holds barred, no varnish, like this is what it looks like. Um, just based on my experience, of course. Um, I'm also going to be speaking at the there's a KCIT summit happening August 23rd, I think, that CDM Media is presenting okay. and um, I'm going to talk about building a high-functioning team, uh, kind of helping Sisyphus get that Excellent. boulder over the top of the hill and what it looks like when you get the momentum on the other side. Um, I, I do want a, a couple call-outs. So first, um, Women in Security KC uh, is a, an organization that we support. I'm you know, very happy to be a, an advocate for them. Um, they've been doing amazing things at, at getting more female voices into the InfoSec community uh, and empowering women, which is Excellent. great. Uh, also, H&R Block's own Accelerate program that I, I can't remember if I mentioned it or not, but basically, briefly, that was where the nur yeah, nursing. Yeah, yeah. So came you know, from, we right? take um, fresh college talent. It's really focused on on uh, application development, security, or software engineering. But uh, you know, they we take a, a crop of 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 new career talent. We put them in a cohort, so they process through together as a group. They can lean on each other. They can learn from each other. A fantastic program. I think we run two cohorts a year. Um, so that information's on H&R Block's website under careers. Definitely take a look at that. Uh, and then just a couple things that I wanted to mention, a couple books I'm reading. Um, I encourage people, like, don't just read business books. Get out there, read some, some you know, find things that, that resonate with you. So I'm reading a book of uh, Celtic wisdom called Anamkara by John O'Donohue that I, I found oh, uh, awesome. fascinating. Uh, and it's going to have some some touch points from that into the talk I'm giving uh, at at the IT summit, and then uh, Atomic Habits by by James Clear, which is a great book, just talking about how making little changes in your life and repeating those uh, amounts to big change in the end. That's fantastic, and you know what? We're going to get the the links to the organizations and the books all into awesome. the show notes. Great. And if you have a if you have um, a link to your talk for B sides. Send that over as well. We'll get that into the show. Sure, notes. we'll do. Would would love to do that. Uh, this has been fantastic, Joshua. We really appreciate you taking an hour out of your day to uh, enlighten all of the common folks like <laughs> me on <laughs> information security. And uh, please keep up uh, the educational effort. I think uh, we're severely short in our industry in that in that. Um, area. Manoj, it's been my pleasure. Great conversation, and uh, thanks thanks for the platform to to express my thoughts. I really appreciate it.